1: If you are offended by potty talk, well, then, you might be offended. It's Monday, March 7th, 2022. From Peachfish Productions, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. WNBA player Brittany Griner has been detained by Russia for, they say, hash oil in a vape pen. Though this news broke over the weekend, the detention happened weeks ago. How many weeks is unclear? Maybe Three. Reiner is one of the stars of the WNBA. She's a dominant force on both sides of the court. She finished second in WNBA MVP voting last year, second in MVP voting three years ago. She was hurt in the season in between. She has seven all-star game appearances. What I'm trying to do is paint a picture of how important a player she is, how famous a player she is to WNBA fans, she would be the equivalent in men's terms of Joel Embiid, let's say, if Joel Embiid were detained by Russia, you would think you would hear about it earlier than three weeks after the fact. There is a strategy in not publicizing kidnappings or detentions by oppressive regimes which view high-profile Americans as prizes. The more heat there is on a kidnapping slash detention, the more it plays into the hands of a government which may want to turn a detainee into a bargaining chip. And Griner, a six foot nine non-binary out lesbian arrested on drug charges, may represent to Putin a prize who he could turn into a symbol of American decadence. Though, given that Greiner's arrest seems to have predated the war, you wonder if people with Greiner's interests at heart, including the U.S., might have been wiser to have clamored publicly for her release as soon as her detention was learned about. It's harder to threaten Putin with sanctions now that he has been sanctioned in ways that were inconceivable when Greiner was first arrested. So to some extent, sad as it is to say, Putin has already won. There isn't hope for Griner's release. I'm not saying that. Anthony Blinken, though taciturn in a press conference yesterday, did talk about the subject and say the U.S. was devoting resources to Griner's safe return. But Putin's objective in his disinformation campaigns is to identify a wedge in U.S. society and widen it. Griner's arrest should just engender a universal response, something like, oh my God, I hope she's unharmed. I hope everyone in a position of authority is doing all they can to that end. That's what every American should be saying. That's what they sh- should be thinking and feeling and tweeting. It is not what they're tweeting. Twitter's algorithm for top tweets tells me about the situation via the eyes of some guy named Nick, Nick Adams, Twitter bio, bestselling author endorsed by President Trump. Longer bio online, his books have been endorsed by Chuck Norris, Mike Huckabee, Sean Hannity, Dennis Prager, Ben Carson, Alan West, Dana Perino, and the NRA. So Nick Adams, more than a quarter million Twitter followers tweets, I hope when Brittany Griner eventually makes it back to the United States that she's found a new appreciation for the national anthem and everything it stands for. Because Greiner had voiced her displeasure that the national anthem was played before WNBA games. And then they have a picture of Greiner, Nick Adams does, with the label woke activist and WNBA player. So that is a criticism from the right that Greiner has failed America. The opposite view put out by Deadspin headline, America has failed Brittany Greiner, subhead. Why does one of the best basketball players in history have to play ball in Russia anyway? The answer to this article by Jesse Spector is America just doesn't have a big market for women's basketball like it doesn't have a big market for Formula One racing or top tier men's soccer players that go overseas to make more money than they could in the United States. The pay equity question is a somewhat interesting debate, but I do think now is the time to blame American society. But if that only plays into Putin's hands abstractly, consider this tweet from Andy No. Andy Ngo is an incendiary Twitter presence with a shade under a million followers. He's famous for going toe-to-toe and often face-to-fist with Antifa. No tweets. The Phoenix Suns confirms the woman arrested in a Russian airport is WNBA lesbian star player Brittany Griner. arrest photo from a prior assault and domestic violence case. There are only, I don't know, 10,000 pictures of Britney Griner that aren't a mugshot. So this shows that America, or the slice of it optimized for views, has come apart exactly when it should be coming together and Putin's work is done, only it may yet to be in the case of Britney Griner. But first, as refugee corridors are being attacked in Ukraine and United States and Western allies seek to ship arms to aid the Ukrainians... Things can get dicey. The U.S. wants to avoid the status of co-combatant or to use a more pre-United Nations phrase, co-belligerent. There are a number of complications here to help the Ukrainians, but still remain a status as apart from the fight. One of the complications is that in the cyber realm, belligerency is ill-defined. And what the United States thinks as not joining the fight is almost certainly different from how Russia judges that. So joining me next to talk about diplomacy and politics is Dan Baer, who is a fellow with the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. He writes for foreign policy and was a diplomat in the State Department during the Obama administration. Dan Baer, up next. Dan Baer is a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. He was an ambassador to the Organization of Security and Cooperation in Europe during the Obama administration. But he was a State Department official with Obama before that. He has lots of experience in international affairs. He also understands domestic politics pretty well. Dan, welcome to The Gist.
0: Thanks for having me. Pleasure to be with you.
1: So right now, it seems the U.S., the West in general, wants to be sure that it's doing enough to aid the Ukrainians and slow the Russians and to editorialize. I support such actions. But there's also this pressure that if they do too much, if they commit too much, they may go, the U.S. or NATO may go over a line to mark the U.S. as combatants and not just outsiders. How real is that risk and how much does it constrain United States actions?
0: I think concern for um, uh, international law constrains United States actions a great deal, more than people probably would think. In fact, from my time in the State Department, the one thing that I wished I could show uh, officials from other governments was how seriously lawyers are involved in the policymaking process in the United States. So legally, it constrains it. I think politically, the administration is working very hard to make sure that up to such a line, they are not being constrained by threats or bluster or bloviating from other parties about um, such considerations because there, there are lines, uh, international law and, and the administration has been very clear. President Biden has been very clear that he does not intend for the United States to be a combatant, uh, in this conflict. Um, so they are working very hard to, to assist, uh, which does not make us a combatant, uh, including by delivering weapons. Um, but, but they, they are going to be careful to not, uh, cross that line. At least that's the current policy.
1: Yes, if we know exactly what the line is, it seems a little ambiguous, especially in the cyber sphere. So who is the actual adjudicator who would go in and say, sorry, United States, and maybe this won't happen until after the fact, sorry, the United States, this does make you a combatant. I mean, to put my cards on the table, I think that it's probably, knowing how slowly international uh, diplomacy goes, it's less likely that someone would actually make that adjudication than Putin would interpret it as a combatant. Combat action. And that is more of what we're worrying about.
0: President Biden was was maligned domestically last summer when he met with Putin. And it was reported that he had given him a list, I think, of 16 th- targets for cyber action that should be off limits. And everybody was like, oh, that's so silly. Everything. Does that mean that everything else is on limits and fair game? And and in a sense, yes. And that's exactly what we do in conventional war, too. We say that bombing hospitals is off limits. And part of what Biden was trying to do there is to establish, in this, particularly in the space of critical infrastructure, infrastructure that has direct impact on civilian lives, um, to establish certain things as off limits for cyber exchanges. And to my mind, that's a very good effort to try to apply some of the same ethical reasoning And therefore, international legal constraints to the cyber domain that we have in the conventional domain where it becomes difficult and where where um, certainly things are still evolving. But the the standard that has emerged is basically that a cyber attack that creates impacts similar to a conventional attack that would be prescribed is considered uh, to be therefore similar in its effect and therefore similar in uh, how you would understand it. Uh, to another act of war. And so y- you would you would try to classify cyber attacks, they would have to reach a certain threshold where they are actually having that kind of um, similar impact to be considered crossing a line. But you're right, there's there's nobody really to judge that other than states themselves. And the attribution problems make that even harder because you don't know that that's that that's coming from the state you think it's coming from, and you could make real mistakes about attribution that would lead to a retaliation, for example, that wasn't warranted, especially if there's a third party that's trying to egg on or create more tension between two parties. Right, and so
1: you said um, that you acknowledge that it would probably be harder for some uh, international adjudicators to say tisk tsk, tsk uh, or somehow sanction the United States. What you really have to worry about is how Russia interprets it. But speaking of sanction, he has already said sanctions are a form of war, which they're not under international law. So I guess the question is, if he's going to misinterpret everything as an act of war, how constrained should the United States be in something like a cyber attack? Or maybe the problem is, well, let's just parse his bluster from what he uh, honestly believes. But then you get into the game of trying to interpret what is bluster from Vladimir Putin, which we got wrong a few months ago.
0: Nothing that Putin says should be taken in good faith. Uh, And and we shouldn't twist ourselves into pretzels trying to either interpret, uh, trying to control the way that he understands things or interpret what he says. What we should do is hold ourselves to the standards that we think are correct that are, that do uh, that do comport with international law and stay within those standards and continue to communicate about that so and, and counter communicate when he's lying about it. Um, but to try to to try to kind of uh, respond to every uh, bluster that he gives us is to give him the power to make definitional calls where he doesn't have it and where he's not doing it in good faith. Um, and so I think really it's it's about staying focused that doesn't mean you ignore what he says because obviously um we want to take data from that and make sure that our responses are are acknowledging the way that what he says affects the public sphere affects the way that others will interpret things uh, but but it does mean that when you're deciding what's What's in bounds and what's out of bounds, you decide based on your interpretation of interlo- international law and U.S. domestic constraints. Um, I think, for example, on on cyber, my personal view is that the United States has not done enough for the last decade um, in both Democratic and Republican uh, administrations to go after to disrupt Russian cyber activity. Disrupting their nefarious activity is something that is clearly not an attack on uh, any kind of critical infrastructure or something that civilians depend on. It is disrupting their bad behavior. And I think we could do more and should do more going forward on disrupting their bad behavior.
1: So in Ukraine, there is something that I think of as reductio ad nuclearum, which is at the end of the day, they do have, Russia does have nuclear missiles. So it's a great line when John McCain says, you know, Vladimir Putin is just a a gas station with an army, but it's an army with nuclear missiles. And it comes up when we talk about things like a no-fly zone or military o- options. You know, they do have nuclear missiles, but... To what extent does it come up in talking about diplomatic solutions or talking about things like refugee corridors? It does, the fact that Russia does have nuclear missiles does seem to constrain even diplomatic efforts more than if we were interacting with a state without that capacity.
0: There's no question. There's no question. I mean, what we are facing right now is a declining power that is acting out of desperation to try to Stop that decline, and we are seeing that nuclear weapons, especially in the hands of a declining power that cannot win conventionally if it you know if if it were up against the United States and its allies conventionally it cannot win, and therefore it has a kind of trump card where it can set where we have to be concerned with the moment of of total desperation in terms of the way it constrains our action right now um I think you know, the, the administration is working very hard to be clear that there is no existential threat to Russia, um, that the only, the only kind of way in which anybody with any kind of moral grounding thinks that nuclear weapons are, uh, we've agreed that a nuclear war cannot be won and must never be fought. Nuclear weapons can only really be justified as a response to a unethical, uh, immoral nuclear attack, uh, it, it, as a second strike, uh, if you will. And so we're working very hard to make sure that we are continuing to communicate to them that certainly we have no intention of of crossing that threshold and that there is no grounds for them crossing that threshold because there is no existential threat uh, against Russia. And so uh, they will continue to reassure on that. In the longer term, there may be diplomatic opportunities to refine some of the diplomatic agreements around these weapons and reduce uh, and reinforce the norm of non-use. Obviously, I mean, I guess one, one last thing on this, there's been an erosion of the taboo that existed for several decades in even talking about using nuclear weapons over the last five to eight years. Putin has intimated several times a willingness to contemplate that, which is incredibly dangerous because the taboo of even talking about it kind of removed it from the sphere of actual discourse in a way that was helpful in reducing the risk. Um, and I think the erosion, the taboo doesn't ju- hasn't just happened in the last three weeks. It It's happened over the last, uh, over recent years. And Putin is to blame for that as well.
1: Right. And taboos are a way, a, a countervailing th- um, act against norms. And so um, when Putin talks about it or violates the taboo, it's dangerous because it's the sign that he feels weak, the fact that he actually has to mention and prattle on about, uh, his nuclear weapons right so it's not saber rattling it's saber saber prattling but it is enough to make the west pretty nervous and constrain um certainly certainly actions that would be undertaken if our adversary were you know a significant power but without the nukes
0: i think i think that's true i mean i think i think there's no question that for example um The decision that's been taken, uh, which I agree with at this point, although I've been thinking about writing about this because I think it's really morally difficult And the people on the ground in Ukraine who are calling for a no-fly zone. I certainly understand why and believe that if I were on the ground, I probably would be doing that, too. Um, I understand the decision that the administration has taken and uh, with its allies that... um, to declare a no-fly zone is effectively, to, you have to be willing to enforce it, which is to say that you'd be going to war with a nuclear power and that the prospects of two nuclear-armed states going to war, uh, the risks that are attached to that are too great to risk.
1: Yeah, I, I I I agree with you. I understand why you'd want to do that. But on the other hand, Zelensky has not called for, say, NATO or U.S. invasion, right? He seems to understand that there are limits that the U.S. and the West will go to, and he also isn't calling on the U.S. to exceed those limits, except in the case of the no-fly zone. And I would think that on his secure calls with Biden, Biden is probably telling him something like, uh we love you. We uh respect you. Please stop asking
0: for this no fly zone. Uh I don't know what he's asking for, but I think that's probably true and I as I said um it's not so this is this is where it becomes really tough. It is not guaranteed that if there were a no fly zone that that would automatically result in a nuclear exchange. It's not even guaranteed that it would automatically result in a direct conflict between Russia and the United States. It's possible that the United States, or uh, more likely a a, a joint NATO mission that was enforcing a no-fly zone, would announce it at a certain time, would say there should be no planes in the air from Ukraine, no planes in the air from Russia, and it's possible that Russia would choose, that Putin would choose to respect that the prospect it's also possible that there it would have to be enforced with uh with you know air combat and and that would be dangerous and would be a kinetic uh, i mean sorry a conventional um conflict de facto between the enforcers and the violator of the no fly zone and that that prospect is too dangerous so it's not a guarantee what's the risk who knows is it 30% is it 70% is it 3% i don't know um, if you're on the ground in ukraine getting strafed right now it seems like a pretty a much more reasonable risk to take than if you're if you're not um and i understand i understand um that nobody nobody has the same position today as the people who are uh in the point of resisting an aggressive war and um i respect that they are in a morally different position. I don't think they're stupid for calling for it. I understand why they're saying it. I also think the president has made the right decision uh, in the way that he's approaching it.
1: Is the West remarkably united in your assessment or was this understandable given everything that went on?
0: I think it's beyond even what individual Western leaders thought was possible. Uh, I I think this is a remarkable moment. And I I think it goes to more than the political, actually. I I think that as I've tried to understand it um, or explain it to myself, I really feel like there is a kind of moral reconstruction of the West that is happening right now, um, as people are reminded of the fact that it is a difficult world and that having democratic societies based on liberal values is something that we're incredibly fortunate to have. And that does require defending. Um, And I think the example that the Ukrainians are setting on the ground, both civilian and military, in the way that they are willing to stand up and sacrifice and they are giving um, proof to the lie of Putin's uh, rhetoric is really inspiring. But I also think the West is kind of getting its groove back and remembering um, that liberal values are under threat in the world and that we have a special responsibility having the democratic societies that we have to defend them when they come under threat.
1: Dan Perra is a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and was an ambassador to the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe from 2013 to 2017. Dan, thanks for joining me. Thanks so much
0: for having me. Fun to talk.
1: And now the spiel. Former U.S. Attorney General Bill Barr got the full-on NBC hour-long special last night. More from Less, a primetime Lester Holt interview, complete with a sit-down, a walk-and-talk, and and many, many shots of Barr's new book, one damn thing after another, Memoirs of an Attorney General. We learned that Lafayette Square was going to be cleared even before Barr's former boss decided to hold an upside-down Bible, so says Barr. We learned pardoning Roger Stone was the right thing to do, so says Barr. We learned that the Mueller report was flimsy and driven by irrational emotion, so says Barr. In fact, here's Barr saying it. What it was, it was a tantrum by the people who were hoping that Mueller would be able to bring down well, Trump. Wait a minute. Mueller himself wrote you a letter complaining. He said the summary didn't capture the substance of his report and that there was now public confusion. No, he didn't say the substance of his report. Actually, he did. Muller wrote Barr's letter did not fully capture the context, nature, and substance of this office's work and conclusions. And substance. The graphics didn't literally underline the word substance in the poll quote, but this was an instance to be thankful for the voice-of-God type gravitas that anchormen were once imbued with. Actually, Mr. Barr, you're full of shit. I can prove it. Cue shit one. Barr did not think he was going to walk from that interview unscathed. In fact, I would bet that given what an easy target he was, Barr wound up glad that so few body blows were landed. Because NBC and Barr had a shared purpose, and no, it wasn't to sell Bill Barr's book or rehabilitate anyone. They wanted to make clear that even this avowed conservative who was glad to do Trump's bidding up until the election could not abide the so-called big lie of a stolen election. NBC knew Barr would deny that he engaged in wrongdoing while in office, and they knew that Holt would push back at times effectively and a journalistic purpose will be served. I give the interview pretty much an A in terms of journalism. But if Barr were sticking to the myth of a stolen election, he would never have gotten that interview. He would not have been granted the stage to spew his, you know, his other nonsense. It is because Barr broke with Trump on the fundamental civic question that the whole thing was worth putting before the American audience. When it came time for Barr to describe his standing up to Trump, he did so with language and descriptions full of color do hate Trump, and I told him that uh, all the all this stuff was bullshit and uh, about election fraud, and uh, you know, it was wrong to be shoveling it out the way his team was. Barr went into details of how he rebutted Trump's claims of fraud. He batted down unfounded theories about Detroit ballot boxes. He rejected requests to confiscate election materials. Barr's motivations clearly were self-preservation. I mean... True, he is right, and Trump is wrong, and Trump was making things up, and Trump should have known it. But Barr is saying so because he wants to preserve his own stature, and that's fine. People are self-motivated. In this case, his self-motivation dovetails with what the country needs to hear, and possibly what prosecutors are going to want to hear. Barr knows he'll never be celebrated at Ivy League schools. He'll never be offered any sort of approval by an institution that could be thought of as vaguely progressive Barr doesn't care. He was once a respected former attorney general under Bush. He wants to at least be a non-disgraced attorney general after Trump. There are many, many conservatives who made peace with or, in fact, celebrated the Trump administration. In fact, I would say all self-identified conservatives, except for the class that calls themselves the Never Trumpers, they're all in this group. There are seven Republican senators who objected to certifying at least one state's electors, but 45 Republican senators rejected the so-called big lie with their vote. Barr wants to be thought of like one of those. It makes him eligible for a board seat with Raytheon or the Carlisle Group, so he's fine taking his lumps over his Mueller distraction tactics. He probably likes the chance to mix it up again. Conservatives love that. In fact, you know, it puts him in good stead with the conservatives. You could say he's, quote, groveling to the media, hoping to gain access that he doesn't deserve. But if you did say that, you'd be the 45th president of the United States. Donald Trump used that exact phrase to describe Barr in a letter published by Axios. As far as NBC, they're fine with getting Barr on the record as offering testimony as to Trump's state of mind when it came to the election fraud, mainly that Trump should have known better important in terms of the case being pursued against him. And remember, it was Lester Holt who represents the media member who best plumbed the depths of Trump's mind establishing mens reis when it came to firing James Comey. As far as the last days of Barr's tenure, well here from that NBC interview is the former AG describing how the meeting ended when he told Trump that your clown car of outside counsel is misleading you about a stolen election. He slapped the desk and he said, accepted, it. accepted, it. go home, you're done. And I should describe the hand gesture that Barr is mimicking, it's a slicing gesture, it seems very Trumpian. The former president offered this version of that conversation, quote, I said, if you didn't see corruption in the election, of which so much has already been revealed, yes, a lot was revealed of the election, but I think Trump means corruption, of which so much has been revealed, parentheses, and massive amounts up until this date, and parentheses, comma, then, T-H-A-N, you are not capable of being attorney general. You don't have the energy or backbone to stand up to the radical capitalized, left capitalized, please give me your letter of resignation, all capitalized. It is hard to wonder why a guy like that who wrote those words and massive amounts of words up until this date, wouldn't listen to his well-reasoned attorney general who proved his bona fides by getting so much wrong up until the very last moment when he got one thing right. And that's it for today's show. Corey Wara is The Gist's assistant producer. Joel Patterson is The Gist's senior producer. Michelle Pesca is Peach Fish Productions' Undersecretary of State for Civilian Security, Democracy, and Human Rights. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, check out AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperu depru do peru, and thanks for listening.